Well, welcome to Mansfield Bible Church here in person and online. We're excited to uh, have the opportunity to continue to meet. And so I praise God for that. You know, I was thinking about that song, how uh, we, God is the only one who can do. And then there's all those things that were listed, turn bones into armies. And I was thinking about Ezekiel and, and turn uh, 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 waters or seas into highways. And I was thinking about the Exodus and I was just thinking about how many things God has done that uh, only he can do. And there are still things only he can do. And we know that it's God's hand at work when we see something that only he can do. Only he can change a heart. Only he can change our hearts. And so my prayer today is that he would do something only he can do. And that is that he would change our hearts so that our hearts are like his heart, that our thoughts would be his thoughts and that we would be focused on the things that are important to him. And one of the things that I know that is crucially important to him is his word. And so I want us to take time to, to begin to pray and I, would, I would encourage you to pray as we look at his word, God has in here the things that we need to be overcomers in this world, to overcome the things that we're seeing in our culture, to overcome the things that, that the fears that uh, uh, cause us to uh, be frightened and to not step forward. God is the only one who can. And so we need to look to him. We need to trust him that his word has everything that we need for life and godliness. It says that. Do you believe it? that it has everything that we need for life and godliness, then it means it has it for this time as well. Not just for a past time, not for a hopefully future time, but for everything that you guys are facing, that we are facing, that we as a culture, as a planet are facing. And so I want us to continue to think about the fact that God wants us to be overcomers. And he has called us overcomers, right? I am an overcomer. You are an overcomer. In him, we are overcomers. Our overcoming is not based on us. It's based on him. And so this series, as we think about it, is a focus on how do we overcome? What does his word have to say? We looked at 1 John. We looked at John 16. And now we're going to look at John chapter 1. And the issue that we're going to be looking at today is light and darkness. How does light help us to overcome. In fact, let's read the passage together. We're going to begin at John 1, 1. And we're going to look at 1 through 5 today, but I'm going to read a little another uh, part of this first chapter. Uh, very theological. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Talking about John the Baptist, not the author himself, the Apostle John. He says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who uh, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's clearly speaking about Jesus here. He's clearly focused on him as the light. He is the light who has come into the world to bring light and life to every person. And I've thought about this. I was thinking about light this week and I was thinking about the issue of, of how important is light to us. Well, it's very important. When we walk into a room and it's dark, what's the first thing that you do? Turn on the light, right? Why do you do that? Well, you want to be able to see. When I was growing up, uh, my mom liked to move furniture. And in fact, even up into her 80s, she was still moving furniture. And, and I know that when I came home from college, I better turn on a light. Because I had no idea what might be right in front of the door. It might be a couch. Uh, I've, I've stubbed my toe on tables that I didn't expect to be where they were. She would change whole rooms. A bedroom might uh, be a bedroom one day and then the next day it might have a table and chairs in the middle of it. And she would make a game room out of it or, a, or something else. I mean, it was just, she was very creative. Uh, growing up, I moved a lot of furniture as well. My brothers and I remember doing that especially. And so turning on a light was crucial to be able simply to see. But there's another reason we turn on the light. And it's not just a physical thing. There's an emotional aspect. We turn on the light because we're afraid. And we, we, we want to make sure there's not... In my case, one of my brothers or sisters lurking in the room, ready to jump out of the darkness and, you know, scare the bejeebers out of me, right? And so there's, there's that, that and, and, but then you worry, maybe there's something else. And so you, you have these fears. So we turn on light, takes away fear, right? We have lights for romance. We put a candle on a table uh, when we're eating a meal together with our, our special Someone, our, our, our wife or husband or girlfriend or bo and boyfriend, and you look at that and you think, so light communicates lack of fear or dispelling the fear. It communicates being able to see uh, romance. I mean, you think about all the different things that light does. And in fact, light is crucial to our life. Light is really crucial, and you see this uh, uh, in, the, in the passage where he says, in him was life, and the life was the light. And so life and light go together. And I think about when you look at our world, the importance of light. Uh, in our world, it helps us to see things. Whenever it's dark, we don't see in color. We see mostly black and white. And so light helps us to see colors and the beauty that God has created. Light also sanitizes our world. We're in a world where sanitation is a big deal right now. The UV light sanitizes. We can go outside and have events that are supposedly safer because of just a simple sanitation process that God has built in. Because of that light, things dry up. And because they dry up, we don't have mold and black mold and other things that, that can begin to grow when there's no light or algae or other things that would mess up the system. So God has built light in to sanitize. Light is a key process to the fact that we have water to drink because evaporation occurs and then 
it begins to rain upon us and so we have water because of light. We have sanitation because of light. We have photosynthesis, so food because of light. And you think about all the things that simple light does. And I think it's no small thing that that's why John starts out in the beginning. He wants us to draw attention to the very first chapter of the scriptures. He wants to draw us attention to the beginning, uh, to Genesis chapter 1. And one of the first things that God says, let there be light. It's a crucial first step. It's something that's important to God that we have light, that we understand this issue of light. And when there is light, it dispels darkness. It pushes darkness away. You can have a simple one light in a room, a very small light, and it gives enough light for you to be able to see. I know one of the early things that I like to do when I first wake up is open all the windows. Why? Because I love light. I love the sunny times of the year because there's plenty of light. Yeah, there's heat that comes with it, right? We're in Texas. But I would probably be on antidepressants if I lived in Seattle or somewhere where there was not as much light. And in fact, the incident rates of depression are higher in places where there's not as much light. It's crucial to our well-being. It's crucial to our health and our life. And you think about now spiritually, light is crucial. John talks a lot about it. He talks about it here in John. He talks about it in 1 John where he talks about light and darkness. And, and you realize that this is a crucial issue. This is a crucial theme in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, we see there's a spiritual battle going on for the hearts and souls of people. It says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the, uh, of, of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So there is a spiritual war going on where Satan is trying to blind the minds. When you're sharing the gospel with the, somebody who's not a believer... You need to know it's not just about how well you make a presentation. There's a spiritual blindness that goes on that God has to remove. Only God can do. Something we sang about. There are things only God can do. That's one of those things. God has to remove those blinders so that they can see the light of the gospel. The gospel is light. The gospel is part of that light. And in fact, that's why you see this idea of being born again so crucially intertwined here in this first chapter because the gospel is light and it brings life. The gospel is Jesus, that he died for us and rose from the grave and that we believe in him, we have eternal life and that takes away the blinders it gives us the right to become children but it's part of overcoming as we saw when we looked at 1 John 5 that's how we overcome, it's the first step is being born of God one of the things that I know is that even as believers sometimes we see but we don't observe even when we have light just a little simple observation exercise I want you to close your eyes and now I want you to tell me what color is my shirt and now open your eyes and see if you were right were you right how many of you got it right got red observant how many of you didn't get it right 
Yeah, I, I would be in that camp most of the time. I, I, I don't always, I see, but I don't always observe, right? Okay, close your eyes again. Let's do one more. On which side is my microphone? On my right or my left? And, I, and I'll say your right or your left, okay? So pick a side. Now open your eyes. How many of you got it right? How many of you didn't get it right? How many of you just made a wild guess? Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, you have 50-50 chance, right? We see, but we don't observe. There's so many times that God will put something straight in front of our faces and we don't see it. We can't see it. We don't understand it. We don't get it. And we need him to help us to see. But one of the things that I know is we can't overcome if we can't see. We need the light to, be over, to overcome. Light overcomes darkness. Every time, except maybe in a black hole. That's theoretical, of course. But light overcomes darkness. In Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, and, and uh, if you go ahead and put that one up there for me, uh, because it, it, I'll have to flip through a bunch of stuff to try to find it. In Ephesians chapter 5, I was asking the question, okay, so what is this light? What is light? And spiritually, I, yeah, I know what light is physically. We talked about that. What is it spiritually? It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's powerful. You are light. I said you're an overcomer. You're also light in the Lord. Got to have that phrase, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, a command there, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So I know that when I'm thinking about light, that I need to be thinking good, right, true. And if I'm going to walk in the light, it means I need to think good, right, true. At least those things. There's more, I think, involved in light, but it's at least those things, good and right and true. And we're going to see what that walking as children of light is, how that, that fits with good and right and true. In fact, uh, uh, here's really the application that I want us to all walk away from here is that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what I'm faced with, that I will make the choice good, right, true. Right? In fact, I was trying to think of a way, how do we remember that? And the only word I came up with is grit. Not my grit. Not me working harder. It's just a word that I just came up with because I couldn't think of any other one. That had a G and an R and a T in it, right? Maybe you can think of another word that's better than that. And if so, I, you know, I'm good with that, but good, right, true. So when you're faced with somebody doing something to you, when you're faced with somebody saying, when, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And in fact, I was thinking about 1 Peter and in 1 Peter uh, uh, chapter 2, when he's talking about how we, how we live, he's saying that we're called for suffering, that we're called to follow in his steps. And then in verse 22, he says, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then while he was reviled, how did he respond? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And I was thinking, wow, what, this is talking about what that light of, uh, life of light 
looks like, what walking in the light looks like. What walking in the light looks like is good and right and true. So somebody says something bad to me, I think, okay, what's the good thing that I can respond to? Sometimes we'll use the phrase, take the high road. And that's, that's a good way to remember it too or think about it too. I need to take the high road every single time because that's walking in light. Because otherwise I'm trying to fight darkness with darkness and we buy into philosophies and thoughts of darkness with darkness. We, we talk about, you, you do something to me, I'm gonna get even with you, right? And what we mean is I'm gonna get more than even. I'm going to do something even worse to you than what you did to me. And we think those terms. We think uh, fight fire with fire. Is that a biblical idea? I mean, think about it. These different things that we've bought into, and we need to go back and think, wait a minute, when I'm being reviled, when somebody says something harsh to me, do I need to respond harshly back? I would encourage every married couple here, every person who wants to be a good friend here, to memorize Proverbs 15.1. Proverbs 15.1. It's a, it's a passage that I go to often. Uh, it's uh, one that I've used in counseling a lot. Uh, I, don't, I was just going to look it up here on the ESV and see how it words it. But um, Proverbs 15.1. Says. Uh, oh. I'm just in Psalms. That's not going to work. Psalms 15.1 is real different than Proverbs 15.1, I'm just saying. <laughs> a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So when I says a soft answer turns away wrath, it means the other person's already full of wrath toward me. And so I can either stir it up or dispel it. And how do I dispel it? How do I make it less? A soft answer. When I'm really thinking, you just hurt me and I'm going to hurt you back. And I stop myself mid-step and think I'm committed to walking in the light because I am light in the Lord. I think that's what we need to do. We need to tell ourselves, stop. What is light? And is this light? I was thinking about the fact that we, we tend to, to um, uh, complain a lot. I know I do. I've heard some of you, right? I spread your posts on Facebook and Instagram and other places. I mean, we, we, we can be a people that complain a lot, right? From time to time. And I, I have to ask myself, is complaining living in the light? Is it light? I mean, think about that. Many times my complaining is just to air something. Proverbs says that's what the fool does. He just airs his own opinion. And I think, well, so I'm being foolish. It's, foolishness probably isn't in the light. Sometimes my complaining or griping is destructive. That's certainly not light. Now, there's times to be, have a critical ability to think through and figure out what a good solution is. Then I'm dealing in light, dabbling in light rather than dabbling in darkness. In fact, there was a passage that uh, really jumped out at me uh, as I was doing this study. And, and it was uh, when Jesus was, uh, was speaking, he was telling a parable. And in, at, in this parable, he, he kind of gives a, a, an instruction. And the instruction is uh, that... Uh, 
if I can find it here real quick, I had it. Uh, but his instruction is that, is that we don't walk in darkness. Is that it's easy to fall into darkness even though uh, we are those who are, are supposed to be light. Well, I'll find it here in a minute, but I don't have it here. We need to walk in the light. We are overcomers. We're over, we are light dwellers. That's what we're supposed to be. That's who we're supposed to be. So let's look at what it is. So one of the first things that we need to understand as light dwellers is we need to know who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And that's something that if we don't have an understanding of that, we won't understand what light dwelling is all about. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God. John makes it very clear that he's talking about the fact that Jesus is deity. Jesus is divine. He focuses on in the beginning. His focus isn't so much on the very start of time. His focus is on who was here before that start. So he's really looking back at timeless eternity. He's not looking at the beginning of time or the creation of time. And so his idea here is in the beginning was the word. Now we know from verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's, he's taking that and directly referring to Jesus Christ. The word there that's, that's used is generally referred to the spoken word. And so this is the idea that the word is uh, of, uh, um, uh, that God spoke the worlds into existence. That he spoke creation into existence because that's what he goes on to say. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. There's a lot of reasons why he says that. Not anything that was made, uh, uh, not anything, and there was not anything made that was made um, without him. He wanted, he was speaking to an audience of, of people who believed in localized gods, in gods of, that were limited gods. They were localized to a certain people. The gods of this people or the gods of the Amorites or the gods of the Assyrians. And you hear those terms. The gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans. And what John is wanting people to know is I'm not talking about a localized God here. I'm talking about a God who is over everything. Is over all of creation. And even in our own day, we have some of those things. We have people who, who will say, well, your God may be that way, but my God is, right? That's a localized God to me specifically. That somehow I have the right to kind of create my own God. It's almost like, you know, creating a meme for yourself and you kind of create this God for yourself. And it's like, no, John is saying, I want you to understand this God who is here is not just a localized God, not a personalized God just to you. He's the God of all creation. He made all things. In Hinduism, you have gods, uh, and we use some of the ter Hindu terms in our own culture when we say, oh, the gods of baseball or the gods of football or the, you know, the card gods must be against me or whatever. It's like, those are all Hindu ideas. If you go to India, you see that very strongly, and yet it's bought its way into our culture. And John is saying, no, I'm talking about not baseball gods. I'm not talking about a god over a 
particular country. I'm talking about the God who is over all and deserves our allegiance of every one of us. This is the one who was in the beginning, who was with God. That idea of being with God carries the idea that he is, he is deity himself. He is associated, identified with the God of the universe. And this idea of this Trinitarian God begins to be explored here in this passage. And he says, the word was God. Now, that sounds really strong, right? And it is. There are some that try to weaken that phrase. Uh, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, for instance, will, will say that's not really what it says there in the original language, that it's really the word was a God, and that Jesus was the first created being, and then he helped God the Father create all other things. That would be a limited, finite God, and the question is, is that what John had in mind? And I would say no, and here's part of the reason for that. One is, is that that phrase, the word was God, is actually a very strong phrase. It doesn't mean word was a God. And let me give you an illustration. Well, let me first say, yeah, the first, the word has the article in the Greek. The word God doesn't. A, a, a Greek scholar by the name of Caldwell looked at this phrase and he said there are phrases like this all through the scripture and this, if the first one has the article and then you have a being verb, then the, what's called the predicate nominative, I know I'm getting into a lot of Greek grammar or into grammar here, English grammar too, uh, the one that doesn't have the article is implied to have the article. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's just a and I can give you a simple example of that whenever I fill out a form. And it asks me to, to fill out uh, 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 not only my name, but then wife. It just says wife, right? Or it says spouse. You know, but if it says wife on the form, I don't mean a wife. <laughs> I want that to be really clear. <laughs> I mean the one and only wife, right? I mean, I don't have to put the in front of wife for the people to know that it's not just a. Otherwise, I'm going to end up with not on my head, right? And so I look at that and I think that's what John understands here. He's clearly saying the word was the God. The grammar supports it. The implication supports it. What he goes on to say throughout this gospel supports it. John 8:58. Before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say I was before Abraham. He says I am. And they, they picked up rocks and were getting ready to stone him. The people that were in the audience that day, they understood what he was talking about. He didn't mean that he was just any old person. He meant I am, which is the very name that in, in, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, God told Moses at the burning bush, tell him my name is I am. Jesus is, John is very clear, Jesus is God. We serve the risen God. And if we want to understand how to overcome, we need to have good grip on, on who Jesus is, in fact. And he is the God, the eternal God, who is involved in creation, who is with God, who is with in a, in a Trinitarian sense, completely equal with the Father. 
And then he has a restatement here. He was in the beginning with God. He wants to make sure that idea of with God is strong. All things were made through him and without him there was not anything made that was made. And then it goes on and says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus is life. He is life itself. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. Jesus is the life. And we have life through him. We have life in him. And it's associated with this idea of light. Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. As we look at that image, I am the light of the world, we need to understand the, the circumstances in which he said that. In fact, you may want to even turn to, to John chapter 8 and just look at it briefly with me. We spend a little bit of time here. Because this is a, a big idea. I know that the women are going through a lot of the I am statements in their summer study. And this is certainly a very important one. 8.12 And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you go back to chapter 7, you realize that he's in the middle of a feast, a festival. One of the uh, pilgrimage festivals of Israel. This pilgrimage festival, three times a year, they would go on Passover, they would go on Pentecost, and then in the fall of the year, the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was where they built these booths, these, these uh, temporary shelters. They would build this temporary shelter somewhere in Jerusalem because they had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. It was a time of celebration. It was a harvest festival. And they would come and they would all gather around this place, the temple. Here was a, this is a 150th scale model of the, of the temple uh, in the first century. And this, this, this picture here, you see uh, this uh, Solomon's portico or all those columns going all the way around. You can see one side of it especially clearly on that back side. You see the royal stoa on the left side where the Sanhedrin would meet. And then you see uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this thing in the middle. Well, if you look to the left, you see the uh, southern steps. We looked at those last time. So people would come up, usually those southern steps, and they would come out those two little places that you see raised, and they would be in the court of the Gentiles. And then they would, typically your eyes are drawn toward the temple there in the very middle. Around that temple was a short wall which said Gentiles are not permitted to pass this point. And if you do, you have yourself to blame for your own death. That's going to ensue. Uh, it kind of would deter you from going past that point. And what you would have is, as you see that very first little door that looks gold, it's very small in, in this picture, but that's the beautiful gate where uh, Peter and John uh, healed uh, the person uh, uh, lame from birth and, and he left and he, and he rejoiced. And, and so uh, through that gate, and it was also called the Susan Gate uh, because it had apparently a picture of the city of Susa above it. As you walked in there, there would be two Places on the right and the left to be able to give your half 
shekel temple tax. And in fact, that area was called the court of women or the treasury. And we know that he was in the treasury and in that place when he was speaking these things because of, uh, of what the passage tells us in uh, John 8 verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So we know that he was right there. And in fact, if I give you a closer up picture, um, uh, it's a little bit different model that somebody else put together. You have that beautiful gate at the bottom and then you have the women's court. And that women's court had 13 places that you could give. The first two for the half temple sh uh, shekel tax. And then you had the other ones. That area looks small. But it was 200 by 200 accor according to Alfred Edersheim. And so that's about an acre. And so you realize it's not a small place. And they would go up to those steps and they would go into that next uh, door that says Court of Israel there, that was the Nicanor Gate. And they would, the Court of Israel was this colonnade that goes all the way around uh, the uh, Court of Priests. And if they went straight, they would go into the Court of Priests. And if they continued straight, they would go into the uh, Holy Place and then the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could enter. And if, as you notice, as each group of people, each place that you passed, less and less, fewer people could actually go into those areas. But anybody who was Jewish could go into the court of women, male and female, uh, as long as they were uh, uh, a, either a, a, a circumcised Jew or they were a proselyte that was also uh, circumcised. They, could, they were uh, of the covenant of Israel. They could go into that area. You'll notice that there are four lampstands in that, and those lampstands would have been there during the Feast of Booths, during the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you went there at night, it would be all lit up. Here's a, a model of it with the, the lampstands lit. And you notice there's light in other places as well around that temple model. So it's important to have these pictures in mind when you read what Jesus is doing. Because there, was a, there were two celebrations, two different things that, that would occur that were characteristics of this feast. Uh, of course, they built the booths and they would live in those. But one was the illumination of the temple. The other was a pouring uh, of water. They would take a golden vessel... And they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which was down in the uh, City of David era. Uh, Hezekiah had built a tunnel there to keep it filled during times of siege. And they would, they would take and they would fill that pitcher with about two pints of water. And they would walk around and through the water gate. And then they would go up and go up the, the, through the temple. They'd go through the court of, of the Gentiles and through the beautiful gate and into the court of women and up those stairs where the Nicanor gate and they went into the court of priests and there was an altar there and with a ramp and they would go up that ramp and then they would pour that water into a silver vessel. It was a big production and they would have a lot of celebration, a lot of music during that time. And that's when Jesus spoke. He, about halfway through this feast, he was, uh, he, it said he spoke in the temple. And in fact, we see that in uh, John 7, verse 14, it says, The middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So he's already started teaching about halfway. It was a seven-day feast, so about three days in, he's, he's teaching. 
And then on the last day of the feast, verse 37 of chapter 7 of John, says the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so he uses that imagery that they've just done, this big procession, and says, well, you know, you've seen the, the, uh, uh, the ceremony and everything. Well, I want you to understand what that's really focused on. That's really focused on what I'm getting ready to do for you. And you can imagine how people go, oh, wow, that's a prideful thing to say. John starts off in chapter one, right? He's God. You got to put it under that guise, under that understanding. This is God that we're talking about, Jesus as deity. And then that same day in verse 12, at chapter 8, verse 12, it says, and again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. And you think about when he spoke that, it gives me goosebumps to think that he was standing probably, well, we know he was standing in the temple treasury area, the court of the women where that, where that, uh, all those uh, lights were, right? Those great big uh, candelabras or menorahs and, and, and he's standing in the middle and says, yeah, you see this light? I want you to know I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now that's crucial because of what he said, what John says at the very beginning. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is our light. He is the one who gives us light. He is the one who helps us to overcome. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now some versions say has not understood it, or has not grasped it. And there were two major ideas with this word. This is a little different word than what, he, what John used in 1 John. There he used the word Nike, which refers to victory in that sense of overcoming. And here it's a different word and the focus is overcoming or grasping. And really both ideas come into play here. The darkness has not understood the light and there's no way it's overcoming it. Light overcomes darkness. It overcomes darkness every time spiritually. And when you, when you think about this, we've got to ask ourselves the question, so how do I walk in the light? How can I make sure that if, if I am light in the Lord, that I'm walking in him, that I am choosing goodness and righteousness and truth? That when somebody does something to me that is not good, that I respond with goodness. When somebody treats me in a way that's not right, I respond with right, righteousness. When somebody responds to me with falsehood, that I choose truth every time. That I don't hide the truth. I don't hide it from you. I don't tell you a different story. When I come to you, I'm honest. I'm, you, you know what you're going to get. That I'm going to respond in a way that, that, is, that, that God intends. Because if I live in the light, then it draws attention ultimately to, to God. That's why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As I do good people, uh, and I do good for other people, people see that, and God gets the glory. I was thinking about a doctor who had uh, gone on a house call back a long time ago. He went into a, a country, he, he was in a country setting, and he went to this farmhouse and he, and he did his house call. And, and, and it started snowing really strongly. And, and so here was this doctor and he was really trying to figure out how do I, how do I get home because he can't even hardly see the road anymore. And so he called a farm that he knew down the road. And he said, hey, can you set out a lantern? I'm on my way home and I just need to be able to see where the road is. And the farmer said, sure, I'll do it. And before long, the word spread and he had lights all the way down to where he needed to go. And I was thinking about our lives and how, you know, I can, I, I shine a little bit, but just for my area and the people around me, and I can only control that. But as we all shine, then a person who's on a road and on a path toward God, they see my light and it gives them encouragement to continue on on the right path. And then they see your light and then they see another believer's light. And then they're drawn to the Lord by the fact that I have this light on my little space and somebody else has a light on their space. And so it, it draws people to God, little by little, step by step, as we are light. And you may not see where that person ends up. You may not be able to see the result of your work, but Jesus says if you abide in him, you will bear much fruit. So that's going to happen as we are light. We just don't always see the traveler and where they go. But in regard to our own life, how do we overcome? I was thinking about another illustration. It was a little kid, a little boy. This little boy was uh, uh, talking to his dad. It was dark. And you, could, you can imagine he has his light. He has his flashlight or he has his cell phone with the light on it, right? I mean, we like light so much we, got, you know, we, got to, we carry it around with us all the time. And he was asking his dad, he says, dad, it's so dark out there. I can't see very far. I've got this light and it only shines in this one little area and I'm, I'm kind of nervous about it. And the dad said, it's not a problem, son. Just keep walking in the light. And when you get home, you'll have walked in the light the whole way. You don't have to see everything. Just walk in the light. And I was thinking about our lives. We need to be those who simply make the choice that we're going to walk in light, that we're not going to fight fire with fire in our lives. We're not going to choose other things. We're going to choose goodness and righteousness and truth. And we're going to do it in his strength. Why? Because you are light in the Lord. We are light in the Lord because we put our faith in Jesus. We are light. Let's be those who choose to walk in the light. While being reviled, we don't revile in return. While suffering, we utter no threats. We know what, how light is supposed to respond. Let's choose it. Father, we come to you and we thank you that Jesus is the light. We thank you that you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. And when we walk in the light, we reflect you. 
Lord, I pray that we would walk in you. We would walk in your strength. We would walk in the light of your word. I pray, Father, that every day we would open your word because the word gives us life. The word is a lamp to our feet. It helps us to understand who you are and where we're supposed to go, what our purpose is. It calms our heart as we hear your soothing words of comfort to us. Words of hope when we're, in, we're afraid. Words of encouragement when we're discouraged. Words of strength when we feel weak. Father, your word is powerful in our lives. I pray that every day we would, we would read your word and that you would give us your light and that we would walk in it. Father, I pray that we would choose goodness and righteousness and truth every time. I pray that we would stop ourselves and ask ourselves, is this good? Is this right? Is this true? And we would not do those things which don't answer those questions. Lord, transform our hearts. Change our lives. Help us to be those who are light dwellers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.